Welcome to the Die Hard Minute, where Movies by Minute hosts talk about the 1988 John McTiernan-directed movie, Die Hard, one minute at a time. I'm Rick from the Mad Max Minute Podcast. And I'm Julia, also from the Mad Max Minute Podcast. And today we are talking about Minute 26, which begins with Hans Gruber addressing the party guests, and it ends with Hans listing Mr. Takagi's accomplishments. I'm so glad we got this set of minutes randomly associated to us, or randomly assigned to us, I guess I should say, because while you do see Hans Gruber earlier in this movie, they're only like little clips and flashes, this is the moment where he really arrives on the scene, and I am so glad that we got to be here for it. Uh, definitely. I'll take any scene where Alan Rickman is the center of attention. I say, we're big Alan Rickman fans from all of his different projects. Yes. Um, I think one of the biggest Alan Rickman projects that we're familiar with is probably the Harry Potter series. Oh, of course. Obviously. I think most of my Alan Rickman impression comes directly from that performance. And I like how in this much earlier role for Alan Rickman, you can kind of see a little bit of that proto Snape coming out, you know, standing up very tall and speaking very low and slowly. He's got like that barbecue kind of speaking pattern. Yeah, I think he shares a lot of attributes. I think Hans Gruber shares a lot of attributes with Professor Snape. Mm -hmm. He's got this sense of... This he's got this power over people where and as we see he starts out this minute, he is saying, ladies and gentlemen, in a very indoor voice, very calm, mm-hmm. very polished, and it gets the attention of the entire room. And that's exactly Snape. Mm-hmm. He he commands a room. He he walks into a room and he calls them to quiet down, but he doesn't have to, he's just being a jerk. They're already quieted down just by his mere presence. Yeah, and if anything, his quiet demeanor is even more menacing because just last week, the elevator doors opened, all of these dudes with machine guns rushed into the room, they started pulling people from different parts of the party, pulling people out of offices and rounding them up in this giant group. Everyone is terrified of what's going on, and then all of a sudden, Hans Gruber Like you said, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, just quieting everybody down. And he's such a terrifying figure because he's not frenzied like the rest of his crew. Yeah. You know. It it almost seems like a form of good cop, bad cop. Mm Mm-hmm. Where all of these other people, they're the violent ones. They're the men of violent action who have acted violently towards these people. And then he comes in who's quiet and controlled. He's sophisticated. He's intelligent. You know, he's got a posh accent. He's well-dressed. He's much better dressed than anybody else Mm. of his associates. They're all in, like, work clothes. Yeah. And then he's in a fine suit. He is, to look at him, someone that you would more closely associate with the people that are at the party than with these uninvited guests. And he goes from calling everybody to quiet down to his next action is pulling out this little book of notes that he's carrying with him. He opens it up and he reads a couple of pages and then he starts talking from there. But just the figure and the appearance of him doing that, it's stately. It is. I got the sense that he was presenting a sermon. He's got this 
this book in his hand like scripture and he kind of references it but he doesn't really need to reference it Mm -hmm. he's not reading from it he's just glancing at it yeah and that is very reminiscent of you know a preacher who has prepared a sermon reminding himself of what he's going to say but he doesn't need it and he has he has what he's going to say he has a presentation to make and he's going to do it yeah so he opens his book and he starts his little sermon and he says due to the nakatomi corporation's legacy of greed around the globe they're about to be taught a lesson in the real use of power you will be witnesses so he's painting the nakatomi corporation in a rather unflattering light and when he did that it kind of made me think well hold on we've just spent the entire beginning of this movie getting to know the people of the nakatomi corporation these don't seem like awful horrible people i mean no they seem very average i mean some of them are very good people yeah some of them are not great people who are currently high as a kite yeah you know an, an average you know sure some of them were having sex in an office and yeah like we mentioned doing drugs and whatnot but they're not terrible people it's not no. like they go around kicking puppies and to hear hans gruber talk about it it makes it seem like the nakatomi corporation is something like wayland yutani from alien or omni consumer products from robocop or literally any corporation from an arnold schwarzenegger movie this giant evil behemoth that everyone should fear and he is the hero rushing in to kill the dragon so to speak it makes me wonder about large corporations if it's inevitable that it could be run by an upstanding guy like mr takagi but because it's so large he can't ensure his standards are kept throughout the entire company Mm -hmm. he has to delegate those responsibilities to other people and once you start involving multitudes of people things happen Mm -hmm. standards slip um so i we've we've begun to learn about the upper echelons of this company and they seem like good people but that doesn't mean that hans gruber is wrong right he may very well be right yeah because we don't know everything about the finances of this company it could be that all of the people at this party are the executive level employees and they've all got their christmas bonus because they liquidated a factory in iowa Right. Or something like that. Right. You Which, know. you know, made good business sense, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But Hans Gruber is looking at it from the point of view of the family who, right before Christmas, has no job. Right. Right. So it's, it's interesting to see the giant corporation, on the one hand, painted as the bad guy. But they're painted as the bad guy by the bad guys. And so we're not quite sure who we should root for in that regard, which is why it's so nice that we have John McClane running around because we can get behind him 100% without feeling weird about it. Yes. <laughs> uh, we definitely have three separate parties here. Mm-hmm. There's there's the uh, Nagatomi Corporation, there's Hans Gruber and his associates, and then there's John McClane. And, you know, the other two, Nagatomi and, and Gruber, we don't know a lot about them. We don't have a trusted relationship with them. Their names don't mean anything to us. But John McClane, being a New York cop, mm-hmm. there is a certain reputation and a certain trustability that is supposed to go along with that. Yeah, so we can follow him and we can trust him. Yes. And everyone else just kind of is place setting, more or less. But getting more, I guess, philosophical with it, Hans mentions, you know, they're going to be shown what it means to exercise real power. 
And that gave me pause because when you think about power, Hans is looking at it in that power is only real when it's used in a violent way. Like he looks at the corporation and the corporation is spending money and making projects and taking advantage of people. And so Hans looks at that and says, oh, well, that's like a false or a less honorable sort of power, whereas the kind of power that he is wielding, the power of violence and coercion, is real power. And so I feel like there's that little bit of a dichotomy there, where the corporation, they build things, they procure resources, they move things around, they they work with money. That's power in the sense of creation and whatnot, versus, you know, Hans is more, you know, power in the way of, you know, taking and destroying and all of that. We get the sense that Hans Gruber is an educated man. Mm-hmm. So I just, I wonder at his misunderstanding of power and what it is and his misinterpretation of it. His interpretation of power is terrorism. And that's what they're doing. That's that's what his part in this movie is. It's terrorism. Mm -hmm. And that's how he is exerting his power. And he thinks that that is the ultimate power or the, you know, the highest form of power. And that's just so inaccurate. And I know the idea of power is open to a lot of interpretation, but it is so much wider than this. So in this, in this, he's very narrow-minded. Mm-hmm. What blows my mind, and this is a bit down the road, we eventually discover, and I think it might actually be by the end of this week, that this line about how they're going to be taught a lesson in the true use of power, I feel like it's just posturing. You know, by the end of the week, he's going to have Mr. Takagi aside in another office, and Takagi is going to con- confront them, and they're going to laugh at him because he's making a assumption based on this minute, based on this moment of them walking in and talking about, ah, your corporation is greedy, and, you know, you wield false power, we're going to show you what true power is. And then by the end of the week, they're laughing about the fact that they said that. I think that is an attribute of terrorism is that it's empty. Mm-hmm. There's no there's nothing tangible about terrorism. It's all about emotions and causing terror. Mm-hmm. But to what end, you know, are I mean to to no end just to cause terror. Yeah. And, you know, it, his posturing is empty. His ev- everything about what he's doing is empty. And That's not powerful. No, it may not be powerful in substance, but it is powerful in optics. And right now, the important thing is that he shows this crowd of people that he's taken hostage, that he's in charge. Yes, he does. I I think with a lot of movies like this, where there's a hostage situation or some sort of takeover situation, that power is very temporary. Mm. And we see... I. I think right now, in this minute and in the upcoming few minutes, he is at the height of his power and he better enjoy it, which he does seem to, um, because it's it's going to start slipping away. Yeah. And because I, these things always do. I mean, even in real life, hostage situations, like you, you reach a height of your power right in the beginning and then it starts slipping away. Yeah. That's how hostage situations work. 
Yeah. So they make a big show of force at the beginning. He introduces himself, shows himself to be in charge here. And the next move, aside from addressing the whole crowd, is to say, okay, now where is Mr. Takagi? And it's at this point that we realize that the reason he was looking in his little black book is because he had a ton of information written down about Mr. Takagi, his personal history, his professional history, his educational history. Mm -hmm. And as he is now looking to pick out Mr. Takagi from this crowd, he is going to just talk about this guy. And I find it really interesting, before we actually get into what he says about him, that he has all of this background information about Mr. Takagi, but he doesn't have a picture. Okay, that's exactly what I was just thinking of. Yeah. I know this is pre-internet, so he had to do some like serious actual research mm-hmm. to get all this information. But I'll bet you a lot of it was taken from newspapers where there would also be a picture of him. Yeah. I don't know if it's tomorrow or the day after, but Hans right out says, I read an article about your company in Forbes. And it's like, yeah, okay, well, if like, he's reading Forbes, yeah, maybe there's a picture. They, they had a picture. Yeah. And it's like, I guess you could argue maybe he did have a picture in that book and he knew exactly who he was going to talk to and he just wanted he to. He was just making a show of intimidating every older Asian man. Mm-hmm. In but the crowd? That's not the sense I get. <laughs> no, it's not. You get the sense that he really is searching for him. Yeah. Yeah. So he starts off by saying Mr. Takagi's full name, which is Joseph Yoshinobu Takagi, born Kyoto, 1937. And as soon as he says Mr. Takagi's name, we get a shot of him with Holly right behind him, and Holly wraps her hand around his arm, telling him not to move, mm. which is kind of an interesting move. Yeah, I'm not a fan of that move. Because Mr. Takagi seems like a really responsible type of leader, the kind of guy that's not shy about his accomplishments. I mean, he's in the this lavish penthouse office. He's throwing this huge party, mingling with his underlings. His office is full of monuments to the company's accomplishments, and Holly is holding him back. Yeah, I really wish that he would have stood up and said, I am Takagi, taking responsibility for whatever it is Mm -hmm. that he supposedly has done. I think it would have sent a message to Gruber that that Takagi wasn't ashamed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I... Yeah, I wish I wish he had done that, which is what I think he exactly what he would have done had Holly not held him back. Yeah. But he trusts Holly. Right. So she thinks that he should hold back. He held back. Yeah, I fully believe that if Holly had not been standing right by him, that he would have stepped forward as soon as Gruber called him out. Mm -hmm. And I think that would have, like you said, shown Gruber that Mr. Takagi is not ashamed. He's also not afraid. He is on home turf. Like, Gruber has come into his house, and so as the owner of that house, it's his responsibility to defend it, to lay down the law, as it were. And so it's it's interesting that holly wants to hold him back and i think that's just because she's scared for him i don't think he's nearly scared enough of the situation and so she's saying hey you know maybe be a little frightened right you know self-preservation type of thing yep and i do appreciate the respect that he shows for her opinion he doesn't second guess her she puts her hand on his arm and he just stops Mm -hmm. so hans continues Family emigrated to San Pedro, California in 1939. So Takagi's family moved from Japan to California when little Joseph was only two years old. He was just a baby when he came to America. And 
I'm willing to bet when they came to America, that's when he got the first name of Joseph, just to help him better get acquainted with the American ways of life. You know, a name that's maybe a little bit more anglicized to better fit in with the people that he's going to be working with and the teachers that he's going to have in school and everything like that. Yes, and that was a very difficult time for Japanese Americans in the United States. As we'll talk about in a few minutes, the Japanese internment camps are just around the corner, and that wasn't the beginning of prejudice against Japanese Americans. It had been going on for quite some time. Mm. So, you know, his family could do this one little thing for him, so they did. Yeah. So what I found interesting is that when they moved to California, they moved to the San Pedro area specifically because... Uh, San Pedro, up until 1942, which we'll explain what happened in 1942 in just a moment, but that district of L.A., the San Pedro community, had a huge Japanese community. Um, We're talking like upwards of 3,000 people. And the Japanese immigrants did a lot for the city of LA, specifically the fishing community. Uh, They pioneered albacore fishing out of San Pedro Bay um, and going down to White Point and harvesting abalone there. They really helped establish a viable fishing industry in San Pedro. In fact, um, I think it was on Terminal Island in East San Pedro, the immigrants actually established like a, a typical Japanese fishing village in that area, very culturally rich area that they moved to. And so that probably helped bring more immigrants into the country, knowing that they had an area of the city that they could occupy. I kind of see it like when we had the great immigration movements on the East Coast with the Irish and the Italians and the, the mainland Europeans coming over in droves. And when they came through Ellis Island, you see a lot of more you know, complicated names, maybe like a lot of the Polish names, a lot of the Irish names, a lot of the Italian names getting anglicized to basically better fit on the forms type of thing. The, yes. the officials at Ellis Island would change the names to make them easier to spell. And I think that legacy of anglicizing a name as they come to America was kind of adopted by the West Coast immigrants as well, just to, you know, help them better fit in. Like we said before, the idea of introducing yourself as Joseph instead of Yoshinobu, like there's two different things when you're dealing with some guy who just moved out from Wisconsin. Right. And that's something that definitely still occurs today. I, in college, I had a roommate who was from Hong Kong and her name was Wendy, but that, I I don't know what her real name was, but it wasn't Wendy. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't even officially Wendy. When she came over to go to school, she's like, okay, you can call me Wendy. Yeah. (laughs) And we were all like, Okay. And I honestly do not know what her real name was. Mm. It's a little sad. She changed a part of herself Mm -hmm. to make us more comfortable because her real name may have been difficult to pronounce or strange to us. Yeah. Well, that's one way to look at it. I feel like the, the other way to look at it is if you're immigrating to a country and you adopt a new first name that is more in line with the people of that country, yes, you're kind of making a change to make it easier for other people to interact with you, but at the same time, you're making a huge life change moving to a new country, and so maybe you want to reinvent yourself. Like, when you go from high school into college, a lot of people 
take that opportunity to really reinvent themselves Mm -hmm. to look at who they were in the previous environment and maybe change it up. Maybe someone like Bobby would go to being named Bob or Rob or something like that. An opportunity for them to just make a slightly different persona for themselves. And so I kind of feel like that's more what was happening. But I, I can see where you're coming from being a little bummed out that, you know, this person who has a rich history in another country and you don't know anything about that because they changed their first name. Yeah. So I mentioned a little while ago that San Pedro had a vibrant Japanese community until February 1942. And that is because of World War II. So when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, there was a lot of fear on the West Coast, specifically of people in the Japanese community. And at some point, the president said, you know what, we're just going to round up Everybody of Japanese ancestry, doesn't matter how many generations they've been in the United States, if they are Japanese in any way, we are going to gather them up without due process and just put them in prison camps. Just pull them out of their homes, not have any sort of protection for their livelihoods or residences, and just cart them away into the deserts or the middle of the country, just away from the coast so that they cannot collude with Japanese spies or anything like that. Yeah, it was the cheapest land that the government could get their hands on. Mm -hmm. So I bring this up because Mr. Takagi was interned at Manzanar from 1942 to 1943. Now, the internment camps ran, I think, three or four years in total. Um, They ran all the way through until, I think, six months after peace with Japan, um, just because of the logistical nightmare of dealing with moving that many people around. But what stood out to me, let's see, Takagi was born in 1937. He went into the camp in 1942, which means he was only five years old. Five years old. When he and his family were uprooted from their home and brought to the foot of the Sierra Nevadas in California's Owens Valley, um, somewhere between the towns of Lone Pine and uh, Independence. And put into this giant camp that eventually held about, I think, 110,000 people um, between 1942 and 1945. Just huge amount of people. And most of them, I would say all of them, completely innocent. They'd done nothing wrong. Yes. And even if there were people who were rounded up that were not innocent, that were acting as spies for Japan, there was no evidence or trial Mm -hmm. or due process, like you said, at all. And these are citizens of the United States Mm -hmm. that the idea of due process and innocent until proven guilty, that's one of the core values of the United States. Yeah. And in this instance, we just tossed it out the window Mm -hmm. and acted from fear to take away the, the, the rights of hundreds and thousands of people. Yeah, basic civil liberties taken away just because something might happen. And it wasn't just Manzanar. There, like I said, were about 10 or 11 different camps around the country Mm -hmm. that people were just taken away from their homes. And the awful thing, aside from the fact that people were locked inside barbed wire 
covered camps and watched with machine gun watchtowers is that when the war was over, the government gave them a one-way train ticket to anywhere in the country and said, okay, yeah, you're free. Go back to your life. Right. That's like locking someone away in prison and then just letting them go well, without them having done anything wrong, which happens. Right. That's what we do. We just let people go. Yeah. But And yeah, that's a problem. But these people, their a problem homes, then, it's a problem now. Their homes had been forfeited. Their businesses had yeah. been stolen and ransacked. They didn't have any livelihood to go back to. And so you've got these, you know, people like Mr. Takagi's parents. They've got however many kids and they're in the middle of their lives. And suddenly they need to start over with sort of a, oh, sorry for that. Glad nothing went wrong from the government. And it's awful. There are so many different resources you can look up about Manzanar to learn more about internment camps. And I know that it's not a easy subject to learn about because it is a serious dark mark on the country. And I know there are a lot of things that the United States has done that are not necessarily glowing and amazing to learn about <laughs> slavery, but it's important to learn about these things that the country has done so that they cannot be repeated. And so probably the best thing to look up when it comes to talking about Manzanar would be an episode of 99% Invisible. Yes, there's an episode. Let me look at my notes. Episode number 253. It aired March 28th of 2017. And it is all about Manzanar and kind of rediscovering it. Mm-hmm. And making it a place of remembrance and learning. And it's been made into a national park, so it is protected land. Mm-hmm. And I believe they talk about in the episode that they make an annual, almost a pilgrimage up there as a memorial yeah, to remember and to learn. So highly recommend that episode of 99% Invisible. Um, and you can find that at 99percentinvisible.org. Mm-hmm. Also, and oddly enough, this came out, this was published around the same time, two episodes of Stuff You Missed in History Class, which I've said it before on our own Mad Max podcast. This is one of my favorite podcasts ever. It's fantastic. Uh, let's see. There were two episodes, a part one and a part two, about Executive Order 9066, which was the internment camp executive order that started this whole thing. The first one was published February 13th, 2017, and then part two was published just a couple of days ago. And those two episodes talk more about the bureaucracy yeah. and how it all happened um, kind of more behind the scenes So I I highly recommend those two resources. Yep. And if you are looking for more of a quick primer, if you go on YouTube and just search for Manzanar, PBS does a really nice little 15-minute cookie-cutter thing talking about Manzanar and the people that went there and how it became a national park. And it's a really condensed little overview of it that has some nice interviews with it. And then there's also a TED Talk on YouTube from George Takei who, of course, was on Star Trek and all the the show and the movies. But when he was a child, he and his family were taken to an internment camp in, I think, Arkansas? Arkansas, I think. And he was also about Takagi's age, yeah. like five or six. So it's his personal experience going to the camp growing up for those couple of years and his experience afterwards. It's incredibly moving. And it's another short one. It's less than 20 minutes. So I... Fully recommend checking out those as well, just to educate yourself about this thing. So we are going to talk more about history 
in tomorrow's minute, but it's going to be a bit more educational and not so much, you know, political. (laughs) (laughs) If you would like to hear more of us, you can find the Mad Max Minute podcast on our homepage at madmaxminute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Mad Max Minute and join our Facebook group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. The Die Hard Minute podcast is a collaboration of Movies by Minute podcasters. Find out more about the Movies by Minute format at moviesbyminutes.com. Die Hard Minute is produced by Jim O'Kane. Our intro music is by John Stebby. Our closing theme is by Tom Geyer. You can follow Follow Die Hard Minute on Twitter at Die Hard Minute, on Facebook at Die Hard with a podcast listener's limo, and at DieHardMinute.com. Subscribe to this podcast by searching Die Hard Minute on iTunes and Google Play. And until next time, where is Mr. Takagi? Tell me you got that. I got it, I got it. Get your heart on Channel 5.